Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. What's going on, everyone? Two big things I want to mention before we get on with the show. First and foremost, our September mentorship is almost full. So if you want to get on the action, I suggest you sign up ASAP. And also number two, if you can give us 30 seconds of your time to give us a five-star rate, we would love you forever. Without further ado, welcome to the show. So Joey, what's your story, man? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so, you know, I got, I was the typical meathead in high school, just an average athletic guy, um, wanted to get more athletic. So I got into uh, to training and weightlifting and in the, the track and in jumping and all these different things. Um, went to junior college to play football and I met my first strength coach and I realized this is, this could be a profession. And the minute I realized I could get paid for training people and, and being part of this this type of profession, I, I was hooked. So um, went on the venture being a strength coach, did my internships, uh, my graduate assistantships all over the country, uh, got really lucky to become a head strength coach by the time I was 23 at Northwestern State, um, and then uh, spent a few years in, in, in the SEC with, uh, under Paul Jackson as an assistant at Ole Miss, and that's really where majority of my career was spent. I did a ton of learning right there. And then, um, you know, was a head guy at Colorado State for uh, for a year. And then I've been down here three now. So just been a wild, crazy ride. Uh, been extremely blessed to have mentors and people around me to help guide me. Um, you know, you don't, you don't ever achieve success by yourself. So there's too many people to name that helped me get to where I am now. Uh, you know, but love what I do. Love the profession. I would do it if, if, if I had to do it for free. I did do it for free for a while. So you know, it's just something that I got a passion for, and, and I really help. I really believe in being a servant leader. I really believe in helping other people. And this is one of the most fulfilling ways to do it is to help kids, especially these guys, you know, obtain different athletic performances and help them get to the NFL and help them win championships and really mentor them because I spend the most amount of time out of any other coach with these kids. You know, I, I spend – I tell them all the time I spend 300 out of 365 days with them. You know, in season, out of season, when they're home, you know, all those different things. So it's a very rewarding profession. And, and again, if you believe in serving leadership and trying to add value to people, it's it's one that really is fulfilling. You know, looking back on the whole summer and everybody training, which you're doing all the plyometrics and whatnot, is there any things that you would have tweaked? Do you find that there's particular drills that you're like, wow, that was actually epic. I'm going to keep on doing these things. You know, I, I put it on our staff and myself to always self audit or edit, audit the program, excuse me. And, you know, we do, we do debriefs post summer. We're in the process right now of, of like, I give all of them free will to go ahead and write what they liked, what they didn't like, what can be more efficient, what can be better, what can be coached with different cues, all those different things. So right now we're in that process. And then what we do is, is we're our sports scientists. We turn around and we also back it up with, with different statistical analysis, you know, looking at, different volumes and prescriptions of exercises, whether it be high speed yardage, whether it be total volume, total tonnage, um, you know, and see what the effect was on our performance metrics, such as sprint times and our vertical jumps and all these different things. So, I mean, it's, it's a loaded question. It's a rabbit hole question. You know, for me, um, the one thing I've done, I did differently this year, I could touch on that I haven't is usually we're a four day model. 
and this year we hit a five-day model. So basically I have two performance days, which is what I call where we're more neurally driven. It's more high-intensity type exercises such as sprinting, jumping, plyometrics, um, Olympic lifting, barbell jumps, ballistic work, that kind of things. What my thought process this year was going into camp, our last block will increase two days to three days to increase the density of the high intensity work that we're doing to make sure that they're prepared from a central nervous system standpoint to perform. And then also when you look at just the ability to, to cope with fatigue, that's also something that you're going to have to deal with in camp with football. So a five day work week, running, lifting five days a week, getting the ability to be used to that. So that's one of the, one of the tweaks we made this year. And I really liked it a lot. And I think it has a lot of application and, and, there's a lot that I have to think about moving into next next offseason as far as application with five days. Yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, if you looked at how the preseason was basically axed from the NFL and then you saw all the spike in ACL tears and Achilles tears and so on and so forth, I think that your idea of prepping these kids for the higher density, uh, high intensity work should have them enough, give them enough of a runway to prepare for yeah. real game time situations. Well, and, and that's what we do is we looked at for each position we broke down. We spent a lot of time doing this. What, how do we reverse the reverse engineer the game? Like what, what is actually happening? Not only in, in the game, but in practice as well, because practice is where you're going to spend the majority of your time. I mean, we practice four times as much as we play, right? About four practices per week for one game. Um, so we had to look at and figure that out. And what we, what we really found out was, is, like, we do a poor job of guessing what's going on, right? So, like, our average total volume of, of yardage for our big guys, like, talking about interior D linemen and O linemen, in a week is anywhere between, you know, if you have four practices, is anywhere between about 12,000 total yards and 18,000 total yards, right? So, it's a big range, but – and then we looked at our skill, and it's anywhere between 22,000 and 28,000. So there's just huge discrepancy in in total volume, right? Like that's now the thing that you'll be like, okay, so a big guys practice is easy. No, because they're they're involved in I think it was like a hundred to 120 more changes of directions in a practice because of the short area. Okay. And then they're also anywhere between 50 to 75 more contacts, meaning more collisions than our skill guys. So when you look at all those all that data, it's hard to train everybody the same. Right. It's it's almost inappropriate. It's almost it's 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 not advantageous to to reduce injuries and all these and get them prepared for practice. So you got to really sit down and figure out what's going on in 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 that practice. And it's different for every 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 coach I've worked for, you know, like this, the, the coach I work for right now, he likes to be out on the field for a decent amount of time. So your volumes are going to be higher. So in the summer, that's going to be something that we're going to have to attack. So, like, again, when you go to a five day work, week, we were able to average for our. our Skill guys right around uh, 20,000 total yards in a, in a week, right? So is it the same number that they were going to be having if they were in camp? No, but is it close enough to bridge the gap to where, okay, it's it's basically essentially ascending to that higher threshold? Yes. And can I feel more comfortable about it? Absolutely. You know, so again, you just – it's something that whatever sport you have, like you need to do the needs analysis of what's really going on. I think that's – you have to do your research. And now with all the research out there through all these different technology, all these modalities for technology like GPS and the accelerometers and, and, all, and heart rate, all this stuff, 
there's no reason in the world you can't, if you can't afford technology, there's a reason you can't find someone that has information that you can use, you know, and you really have to do your, your, your homework and your due diligence on this because that's the only way to prepare these players for practice is to know what's going on in practice and then get them ready for that. I want to touch on what you mentioned earlier about how it you can't necessarily train all these positions the same because you're not going to give them justice, right? They have different outcomes and they have different specialties. And in mo some people might say like, well, you got to stay general because you're, t you're training a whole team, right? You don't have time to do these ins and outs, but yet you're doing it at a high level, at a high volume. So how did you implement these little differences amongst different positional groups? Yeah, so I, I think you got to look at what are your available resources, meaning staff-wise, equipment-wise, all these different things, right? Because if you don't have – if you're one person running a team and you have to run 115 players, like, it's going to be hard to split that team up and to get in a group. So I understand that argument. You know, um, I'm lucky enough to have four assistants plus a sports scientist plus five interns. You know, so we're able to do some things that other high schools aren't. Now – if you had three coaches, can you still get the job done? I think absolutely. You know, so what we do is we mailbox guys. All right. So, you know, our interior D linemen, our old linemen, they're together, right? Our linebackers, running backs, our down safeties. So we run, we, if you're, you have your bigger safeties, you're going to put them in that category. Our tight end is going to be in that category, right? And then you got your, your, you got your motorbikes, man. You got your skill guys. You got your corners, your receivers, and your fast safeties. I think. Just breaking those that those three groups, those subgroups, right? Making those categories can provide you so much more options as far as being more individualized to what their needs are, just by having three categories. Now you get a staff that can break it down even further. And I mean, we have six to seven different categories based off uh training age, strength development, and position. You know, so there's there's ways like when you come into the weight room. You know, we have our our first, second team offense out in, in the weight room at one time, right? About 30 guys. You might have seven programs going on at one time. You know, and that's because we have the coverage. You know, but that doesn't mean that if you don't have that many coaches, you can't turn around and make, okay, my big guy group's going to lift first. Well, they're going to have different amount of volume, probably higher weight room volume, less running volume than my skills. So it's that inverse relationship on the field. My skill guys are going to lift not to the same extent of volume-wise as they are. They're going to do more reactive strength work, and they're going to have a higher volume on the field when it comes to sprinting and total yardage, total conditioning yardage. So, again, I don't, I don't think you have to reinvent the wheel. I just think that you have to prescribe the right amount of volume. You don't have to change your entire program, right? I tell people all the time, it's like, it's like a really – you go to a good uh, restaurant that has really good steak. Like, you don't want to change the steak, right? Like, that's going to be jumping, sprinting, Olympic lifting, ballistic jumps, all those different things. But you might want different size, right? You might not want mashed potatoes. You might want, you might want sweet potato. You might not want, um, you know, A1 sauce. You might want Heinz 57, whatever it may be, right? But if the plate's the plate, it's a lot easier to move and navigate and, and change those sides. So, again, I tell people all the time, you don't have to get super complicated with making small adjustments. You change five sets to three sets going from big to skill, that's, a, that's an adjustment. You change from, okay, instead of skill doing – Front squats like big guys are, they're going to go split squat. That's an adjustment, right? You just got to make sure that you can, A, control the room and make sure that they're efficient and they're moving and they're getting what they want out of the session. And then, B, all right, that are you actually – is it 
beneficial to those athletes. Meaning like, I'm not just changing things to change things. Like there's a process and a purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the biggest thing, you know, is, is knowing your resources, knowing what the differences are going to be, how you're going to tailor it. And then being very, very good at coaching it. Because I think that's kind of like, we all sound great on podcasts and we're all smart and all these things. And then you go to the application side of it and you see the room and it's like, man, that's a train wreck. (laughs) <laughs> no, and, and the, but that's that's what we get. I, I love the fact that sometimes we forget this is like my title is coach. Like you got to be good at coaching it first and foremost. If you're not good at coaching, it doesn't matter what you're doing. So, you know, again, that that's a huge part of the application is being able to be in the eye of the storm, coaching every rep, every set, make sure the technical details are on point, making sure that there's intent behind the list. I think that's the biggest compliment I that I, I think that anyone could give us is when people watches our videos. Everyone always tells me the intent behind the movement of your guys is always at a high level. And that's that's what I thrive on. Like, that's what I want out of it. Because that's the only way you really can really break barriers and push performances if you're getting that intent out of those guys. Mm-hmm. And that comes from coaching. That comes from demanding high effort. That man, comes from attention to detail from the players on, on little technical cues. Those are things that are necessary. I help program for a high school over here in West Palm Beach. And... Uh, we're introducing a lot of reactive strength and a, a lot of high speed lifting techniques and whatnot. And it's we find it a little bit difficult to get the message across about the intent, right? It's I think it's because the old model is just like bigger, faster, stronger, keep loading these guys, keep loading these guys. And I, it might give it might work at a high school level because everybody's general strength is pretty low. But I'm sure mm-hmm. there's going to be some laws of diminishing returns. I, I, I'd like your opinion on that or your thoughts on that. Do you feel like there's a point where you no longer need to be as strong as possible? I think, again, I think it's about building reserves. So whenever we talk about reserves, like, okay, I'll give you an example, like speed reserve, right? If I could get a kid to go from 20 miles an hour top speed to 22 miles an hour, when he's tired, say he's at 80%, okay, the kid that's at 20 mile an hour is going to run – 16 miles an hour versus my guy that's at 22 miles an hour is going to run 18 miles an hour. My guy at 18 wins. So it's about building reserves. I think the same can be said for strength, right? So when I do have to tap on and dig in, I'm an old lineman and I have to dig a guy out on fourth and one, I need to be able to have that, that, that leg drive and that strength in there. So, you know, that 500 pound squat might come to use. Now I will say this, okay, there's definitely a point of diminishing returns. When we look at the actual movement time of majority of football movements, they happen under 300 milliseconds. I'm talking blocking. I'm talking breaks. I'm talking basically any movement. And how do I, how do we know this? We turned around and we videotaped about what we, what we did was, is we, we categorized what are general movements for each position group. So a DB doing uh, a hip flip, a DB doing a, uh, a 90 degree break, a 45 degree break, uh, a straight 180 degree break, right? All these different things. An old lineman kick slide in, all these things. What we found out was, I think it was like 97% of those movements were under 300 milliseconds. Okay, so when we talk about, all right, everybody loves strength, but it's how fast can you be strong, right? So that explosive strength deficit that Jaworski always talks about in, in science and practice comes into play. It comes into play because you might have the kid that squats 500 and you might have another kid that squats 400, but the kid that squats 400 is way more explosive and has way more rate of force development and can sum sum up more forces in that 300 millisecond timestamp. He's going to win every time, even though that guy squats 500. 
Now, don't get me wrong. If that kid goes from 400 to 450, I love to have that reserve. Now, am I going to spend as much time on driving that attribute? Absolutely not, right? Because what's really important is going to be rate of force development and power development. When you talk about uh, success in football, or everybody always talks about, oh, you need a really strong bench press. Okay, you need, for old linemen, you need a really strong bench press. I would argue that a push press is more uh, indicative of a good punch than a bench press is because of, all right, you give me an old lineman. Like, I'll give you an example. I, I coached Laramie Tunsil, who plays for Houston Texans, probably going to be a Hall of Famer. All right, and he was already a great athlete, so I'm not trying to take credit for anything he's, he did. All right, Laramie never benched while he was an athlete at Ole Miss. He never benched over, over 365 pounds. But Laramie, from the front rack position, could split jerk over 365. Okay, and I've seen Laramie bury Miles Garrett in a game. Okay, I'm talking about strike him, knock his neck back, and then bury him. Okay, you're not going to tell me that's because of his bench press. Yeah. So, again, when we look at these these exercises that might have the higher rate of transfer, you know, it's it's like anything. You want to hit all ends of the spectrum. So, yeah, do we want to get them stronger so there's more strength reserve? Absolutely. But as I'm getting them stronger, I better be getting them more explosive and I've been increasing their rate of force development so that they can actually transfer and use these new levels of strength in the game, in the timestamp that it's going to be played at. So, yeah, there's always a point of diminished return. I got a, I got a, I had a freshman walk in. His name's Evan Anderson. He's a, he's a uh, D lineman for us. Evan walked in the door and benched 455 pounds. Okay, big boy. D tagger from Orlando, one of Jones High School. Walked in the door at 450. Like, am I going to spend the next six months trying to drive his bench from 450 to 475? Or am I going to work on, A, getting him lighter because he came in at 385 pounds and now he's 320, and, B, working on his speed and his and his explosiveness, specifically lower body, because he had a 21-inch vert. Now he's a 28-inch vert. And a lot of that has to do with his weight loss, okay, but also that has to do with the style of training that we implemented, right? He's already strong, right? Did we make him a little bit stronger? Absolutely. But what was more important, what was, what was more of the pressing issue was making him more explosive. So I look at it that way as well as, like, what, what does the athlete need in that, that time, right? So like you said, like high school kid, you get a freshman, that's a baby giraffe. Man, get, driving his trap bar deadlift up 100 pounds, he's going to make his vert go up. Guarantee it. Okay, guarantee it. And everyone's going to be like, oh, strength matters, strength strength's only thing that matters. No, it's part of the puzzle, right? You have to dissect what that athlete needs. And not, and it's not just going to be him. It's going to be five, It's going to be probably 20 to 30 of your athletes are going to be in the same bucket. Because you see trends. Your nickname is the Mad Scientist, and your Instagram is full of um, plyometric drills and uh, these different things that you don't necessarily see, right? And we're talking about these KPIs and what we need to be doing for particular players. How did you arrive to the certain drills that you're using with these players? Because once again, like you said, like we all sound smart on a podcast, but some coaches are listening like, okay, what should I do? So how did you get to this point? So first, Desmond Cook, who's uh, our director of FCA at Broward County, who is one of my best friends, is the one who termed that. I never, ever got called that until he put it on a little flyer. And it's because he always comes, he's like, you're the mad scientist. I'm like, yeah. And then I put that flyer, I didn't even realize it said mad scientist. And I got a lot of, I got, I got a lot of shit for it. I'm not going to lie about it. All right. So I, I, <laughs> uh, whenever, whenever you look at, so for me, it's like, okay, there's, there's, there's buckets of exercises, right? I look at, okay, what's going to increase rate of force development? 
what's going to increase absolute strength, what's going to increase my reactive strength, what's going to increase – is something more eccentric dominant, is it more concentric dominant, um, is it going to increase any of those categories. I, I try to simplify things. As, as, and I know that's I, I threw out a lot of complicated things right there, but I try to simplify it. So for mm-hmm. me, it's I'm going to look at does it satisfy what I need it to satisfy, meaning if I say, okay, I want to increase eccentric rate of force development. Okay, what are some of those exercises that I can put in that classification in my menu of exercises that are going to satisfy that need? All right, and then the next thing I'm going to say is, okay, what's the beginning progression and how do I progress it all the way to the end? So my, my end game, because uh, we, we have to overload exercises, mm-hmm. right, or, or else we accommodate, and then there's maladaptation. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do I go about increasing uh, the intensity or, or the variation or the volume of something to increase that overload over time? And that's that's what I look at. So, like, perfect example is, like, I, I saw a need for deaccelerative strength. And rate of force development. There's a huge need for it, right? We all work our gas, 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 and then we don't work our brakes, and then we wonder why all these guys get non-contact ACLs in the braking phase, or we have hamstring issues, or we have ankle issues, which is a lot of people don't talk about, but if you increase braking strength, all right, and rate of force development, you actually increase their ability to get in better positions, which negates ankle injuries, because we saw a huge decrease in ankle injuries over the spring, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. which kind of like proved my mini hypothesis. And now it's a case study, so don't, just don't put it as, as in stone yet, but it was a case study that worked for us. So, yeah. again, we want to increase deaccelerative rate of force development and deacceleration peak force. So what does that look like? That means we're going to attack eccentrically. So strength-wise, what do we need to do? We need to do control lowering. We need to do tempo work. Mm-hmm. All right, polyquin, triphasic, whatever method you want to work, right? Um, you know, ALE, accentuated uh, eccentric loading, Whatever method it is, we're going to start baseline. So what's baseline for for control lowering? It's 60 or 70% on the bar, front squat, back squat, split squat, whatever your, whatever your flavor, right? A controlled lowering to a pause and then explode up. So that's going to be my base progression. Well, how can we advance that, add bands to it? Instantly, now the eccentric forces are way higher, okay? Yep. How can we advance it even more? Make it uh, super maximal. That's where the ALE comes in. Make sure it's a hats field where their hands are off on the way down, okay? And then put the hands on. We know that we gain about 15 to 25% more strength by being supported by our hands. So I could use 120, 130% of their, their 1RM of a, of a split squat or a hats field back squat, okay? And now I could turn around and have them descend control with no hands, explode up with hands so concentrically we're safe and we're getting that that super maximal uh progression and loading on them so again just taking it from the the simplest version to the most aggressive and progressed version the same could be said our rate of force development okay i look at altitude drops or or box step offs as my bread and butter for increasing essential rate of force development Uh all right how do you start where do we start at we start at their vertical jump why because if I started less than their vertical jump, if I just had them jump in place, I get a better stimulus than them starting off at their vertical jump from a box. Right, you know, right. so we looked at our average for our skill. I think it was like 33 inches uh, in the beginning of summer was our average skill. We put them in a 33 bo- 33 inch box. They step off, they stick hold. What's the next progression? We go to a depth jump. 
mm-hmm. are allowed. The next progression would be a higher box and then a higher box. We got up to a 42-inch box with our guys handling it with ease. Okay, then what do we do? We go to a depth jump and we bring it back down to their vertical jump height. And then we progress that. I have guys jumping 40 inches off a 42-inch box by the end of summer. Okay, <laughs> if you do it smart, if you do it effectively, if you progress it uh, gradually through the weeks and you monitor it, there's no reason in the world you can't be aggressive. You know, right. and we, we had no Achilles. We had no no hamstring, none of that bullshit, right? Like, it was it was great to watch. And then what we saw was is our, our verticals peaked in week seven and week eight of the summer, which is – not surprising, you know. Uh, so again, just finding the simplest way to get to to satisfy that need that you need to train, and then moving it progressively to the end game and seeing, okay, what do I want to get it to? What is the most aggressive and what's the most intense version of what I'm trying to train? And then when you map it out, it becomes really easy. It's just plug and play. So you're you're obviously a very uh, smart guy. So your programming is rock solid, which I'm assuming will mitigate injury risk for your, for your athletes. But my question is, have you ever had to personally change programming for certain athletes that have gotten injured, or is that not your role as their coach? That that have not what? Where did you lose me? Uh, I heard change program, and then just the just the last part. So yeah, have you ever had to change programs because of athletes getting hurt, or is that not your role as the coach, or is that the role of a PT or something? Yeah, no, I mean injuries are part of training, right? Like a guy, you're especially with us, we're, we're and I'll talk about it probably more openly than most people. Like we were, uh, we were very aggressive in our last block of training. So we 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 got some some minor strains here and there. A guy feels tightness, hamstring, hip flexors tight, quads tight volume of squats caught up and then the high speed running caught up, whatever it may be. You know, we didn't have a ton. We had less than five, but it happens, right? The The goal is to go to plan B. What can you still accomplish through training, right? I don't want the kid to go sit in the side or, hey, go to leg press. No, like, okay, your quad's tight. Cool. So where does it hurt? Deep hip and knee flexion. All right, cool. We're going to go to a 24-inch box. Instead of going all the way down in our squat, we're going to go to a 24-inch box. Hey, it hurts pulling from the floor. All right, great. What about from the 12-inch blocks? feels great. Okay, good. We're training it. Let's go. I mean, we, we forget training is rehab. Rehab is training, right? Like it goes both ways. Like you still have to get that muscle to fire. Okay. Cause we forget, okay, let's just rest it. Let's sit around. And then that, that neural pathway, that motor firing is not the same. Okay. And then all of a sudden it's lagging and then there's a compensation and then you get another injury and it's like, Oh, what are we doing? Right. Okay. You got a strained hamstring when you, we can't get upright when you sprint. Can you do sled work? Good. Cool. We're doing sled work. All right. Can you do speed dribbles? Absolutely. We're going to kill speed dribbles. We'll build up the frequency and the speed of it. We'll build up the height at which the heel recovery is at. And then when you start to feel really good, we'll open you up gradually and we'll get you back to where you need to be. You know, so I think, you know, you always just go to plan B. And if plan B is not there, you go to plan C. You know, when I do return to play for all of our players. You know, and people always ask me, well, what do you do? I, I was like, I do a one-off of our regular workouts. And they're like, what do you mean? Well, if he can't sprint because he got an ACL and he's at that phase where he's not running on land, I put the seat as high as I can on the assault bike. I have him go as hard as he can for 10 seconds, and he rests for a minute and 20 seconds. And what does that simulate? That simulates upright running. You know, so I think you could still accomplish what you want. The, the training themes that you want to hit, I think, you know, Do you have to make modifications? Absolutely. I have kids that have fused wrists. I have kids that have, you know, that came in 
and they have okay, I got a quarterback that had a labrum in high school. Like he can't go, he can't snatch and press overhead on that arm. Like you got to make those modifications. I think that's where you got to have the injury history and everyone's got to be aware of what that modification is going to be. And then you got to have, you know, shit happens. You know, a kid might come in there and he doesn't brace properly and he takes the bar out and, he, and you know, his spine looks like a fucking Jenga set, you know, and he just happens. It, it happens, right? And all, all of a sudden his back's tight. Like you got to make modifications on the fly and my coaches have to be up to speed and I trust them. Um, and we talk about it all the time, but okay, if he can't do this, what can he do? He goes to this. If he can't do that, where do we go from there? Can we go? If it's that but debilitating, you see the trainer right now, and then we'll revisit if what he can do later on. You know, so I think it's just always a constant flow of communication. I think the workout debrief is is always important. I think the work the 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 briefing before the workout is important. I think just getting everyone on the same page. The one things that one of the main things we preach is how strength training and rehab are essentially the same thing. And a lot of our like loyal followers are probably punching the air when you were saying all that because you you hit the nail right on the head, man. It's just the people try to overcomplicate it and they try to add all these modalities like ultrasound and all this stuff. And it's like it, you don't need that. You just need to understand that when you fly close to the sun, you're really pushing the system. You're going to have some aches and pains. You're going to have some tightness. It is what it is. Um, I did want to like finish this whole conversation up because I did notice that you are training your son who's getting ready for, I believe, football. And I'm just curious, like, where do you draw the line where it's just like, okay, this might not be necessary for you right now, like for this advanced training technique. Uh, because all of us strength and conditioning nerds would probably like to do everything like for our kids, you know? Yeah. So I, I look at it like this. I think my biggest pet peeve with, with youth training is parents will bring their kids to the playground, let them jump off six and seven feet objects. And then we hear you can't do plyometrics until they squat two times body weight or they have <laughs> certain levels of strength, all these different things, right? Why are you doing speed training with kids, all that good stuff? And I'm like, listen, Okay, if I would have been if I was taught to run better at an early age, like that was my main my main roadblock in me advancing as an athlete in college was I wasn't I wasn't in that upper echelon of speed for my position group. Mm -hmm. Like the first thing I said when I had a son was like, I'm going to give my son that that upper hand. You know, obviously I'm in the profession. I spent all day reading and training guys. So I have I have a better hands on uh, approach than just like the common dad down the street. But that doesn't mean that you can't go and do something with your kid. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the biggest thing is you got to progress them as they progress, you know, so, mm -hmm. and you got to really be careful of, of the intensities, not the volume. They can handle the volume. It's the intensities. Like mm -hmm. well, my son, is he capable of squatting two times body weight right now? Absolutely. What's the heaviest squat he's done is probably 65 pounds and he weighs 65 pounds, mm -hmm. right? It's about, you know, uh, the guy at TCU, Zach, uh, the baseball striker, it's, it's movement over maxes right now, mm -hmm. right? I want him to move and be an, an efficient mover. I want him to gain strength through those ranges of motion, okay? And really what I want to do is, is I want to make sure that we're, we're attacking speed and rate of force development. Like, I, I hear the story all the time. Uh, what the heck's his name? Vern, the the thrower, the guy that's on those YouTube videos where he's doing, like, 15 hurdle hops, and then he goes jumps up the stadium stairs. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. The French guy? I don't think he's Swedish or something. I can't remember what oh, he okay. is. The guy, he has a mullet, though. Yeah, and for he's sure. Got, he always got the, he's got the <laughs> 80s cut-off T-shirt, right? Yeah. What people don't understand is, is he had a twin brother. What? Right? And all this guy did was train 
explosive his entire life, and he ends up being a world champion. I think it was a discus. I mean, don't misquote me. It was something. Yeah. He was a world champion thrower in whatever event it was, okay? And his brother was just like an average guy. So you can't tell me that from an early age to train explosively, obviously smart, okay, meaning don't 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 do any harm to your kid, meaning don't put your kid under a 45, you know, 135 at age eight and max them out. You know, don't have them do depth jumps at, you know, three times their vertical jump height, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but to get them involved in track and to have them jump, you know, broad jumps and, you know, standing triple and all these different things, um, you know, box jumps, you know, teach them the, the, the fundamentals of weightlifting now, mm-hmm. you know, teach them how to squat properly, what the proper hip extension firing pattern is, you know, how to get some some – some lumbo-pelvic control. Like, we all want to complain about injuries in, in soccer and youth soccer and baseball with the shoulders and all this overuse stuff, but then we don't want to talk about what the, the potential solution is, is making them more robust by training those antagonistic muscles, by adding more uh, more pelvic control, lumbo-pelvic control, by, by teaching them how to move their body more efficiently. You know, and I tell it all the time, like, you know, people are like, oh, I can't believe, you know, I get so much hate on Twitter for putting some of that stuff up. It's funny. It's hilarious, you know, and I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm an asshole on Twitter with some of these guys. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you should probably put Netflix down and read a book, you know, but it's just it's it's baffling to me that we still have this connotation in our head. Like you shouldn't be training these kids. Meanwhile, every other country that's serious about sports, when you look at Russia, China, um, you know, even even South America, when it comes to football, like soccer. Like, they're training these kids as early as six, seven years old. Now, do they specialize at six, seven? No, they're probably specializing at 13, 14, 15. You know, and, but it's it's the same idea. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it's we're getting mad. Oh, hey, kids pick the barbell up. You know, it's 25-pound bar. He's, he's snatching it. Oh, my God, you're a terrible father. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> says you when my son's on the same field as your son. We'll be see who's laughing then. You know, like, we'll see how that goes. You know, or, you know, just trying to scrape that genetic potential out of them. You know, get them to move sure. better. They feel com- – my son feels confident all the time, man, because he's like, I do all this hard work, and he loves it. You know, that'd be one thing if I was dragging him – I was dragging him in. You know, people yeah. – I got I got the guy, he's like, oh, this looks like torture. I'm like, how – I was like, yeah, it looks like torture. And then we went outside and played dodgeball. That's torture too, right? <laughs> Spending time with your father's torture. You know, like – so it's just funny to see. Um, you know, like I said, I, again, if you think it's going to cause harm to a kid – you know, research it, do you do the work. And if you don't know how to implement it, find someone that does. Cause I guarantee you nowadays there's someone probably within five miles of you that can help you out. Yep. You know, you yep. just got, you know, don't, don't be scared to Google things. Don't be scared to call other people, you know, and do what you're comfortable with. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. Well, Joey, you lived up to every one of my expectations. Uh, you're a genuine guy. I really appreciate you taking the time out and talking to us and, once again, thanks. And where can everyone find you if they want to ask you any questions, if you want to open up that Pandora's box? Yeah, I mean, if you social media is Coach Joey G. Um, and then my uh, my emails on the website, I, I don't, I, I'd have to spell my whole last name out and all that good stuff. But, <laughs> gotcha. but, uh, if, you just Google, if you Google my name, FAU, it'll pop right up. And then you can email me anytime. 